Kia ora all and welcome back to the second season of Antarctica Unfrozen. For the first episode of the new season, we have a very special guest for you, Dr. Vonda Cummings, one of the principal scientists for Aotearoa New Zealand's National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research, more commonly and simply known for that matter as NIWA. Her list of academic achievements and commitment to the greater scientific community, especially in the Antarctic science sphere, is comprehensive. Vonda's research is focused on the implications of acidification, climate change and other anthropogenically derived changes to our oceans, aka human created. I felt incredibly lucky to catch up with Vonda and record at Niwa headquarters in the capital city of Wellington where, in a short amount of time, we delved deep into some fascinating and critically important research. Together, we demystified what usually come across as complex scientific ideas to the average citizen, much like myself, around marine chemistry and condensed a lesson on ocean acidification into under 20 minutes. This is a model episode for our second season which hopes to serve as a crash course on the environment via the example of the last great natural science lab in the world, Antarctica. Fonda, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on to this podcast and, and sharing some of your knowledge today. What, what would you describe yourself as? So I'm a marine ecologist. Um, I work a lot in the coastal area and I'm really interested in um, what kinds of animals you find there, how they interact with their environment and how they're affected by environmental changes that might occur for one reason or another. Awesome. And so this is in Antarctica we're talking about? Yep, in Antarctica but also around New Zealand as well. Ocean acidification. How would you uh, sort of describe ocean acidification to someone that's never heard it before, for example? Um, So ocean acidification is caused by the excess CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So one of the things that more CO2 does in the atmosphere is makes the um, world a bit warmer. And the other thing is that some of that CO2 gets absorbed by the ocean, so it dissolves in seawater, and it undergoes a series of chemical reactions which actually causes the ocean seawater to become more acidic. So... If you've heard of pH, you know, the pH scale. So the pH of seawater actually goes down a little bit compared to what it is. Okay, so down from, is it it 7? What would be the baseline, the rough baseline for ocean acidification? So it's um, in in the oceans at the moment, the pH is around 8.1. So it's not like acidic like you would expect, um, something like vinegar or whatever. Um, But it it sits at around 8.1. And ocean acidification can cause that to drop by um, 0.3, 0.4 pH units by the end of the century. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but um, pH is measured on a log scale, which means that you're talking about um, quite large changes in acidity. And if you're an animal uh, that's sitting on the seafloor or living in that water, then yeah, those how does pH t- affect me? How does the the acidity of the ocean, as a as a critter living in the ocean, how would that might how would that affect me? Well, the critters in the ocean are all adapted to living at a particular type of pH. So, they their internal fluids and things and and um, the processes that go on within them are all 
adapted to working at a particular pH. So if that seawater surrounding them becomes a little more acidic, then that means that it disrupts that kind of acid-base balance within the organism and it can cause some like physiological problems. It can make it dif- more difficult for them to do things or it may mean that they have to use more energy to do to go through a process that you know they were quite doing quite well when um, the seawater was at the pH they were had expecting. Its, had this this magical equilibrium that we seem to Basically. keep talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so why is acidification a concern? Apart um, from what we've just talked about so, affecting the animals. Yeah, so that's a concern. The other concern is that um, at a, along with a change in pH, you also get a change in um, the carbonate concentrations. So if you think of a shellfish, shellfish are made of... Uh, their shells are made of calcium carbonate, right? Right, and those shells can be made of different types of calcium carbonate, and there are some types of calcium carbonate that are quite susceptible to acidification, and they actually start to um, dissolve away under a particular level. But, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. It, um, but, but it is a problem, especially for the larval stages. So you know, like the the baby stages of the of the shellfish or the sea urchin or whatever it is, because at that point they're often making their shell or their skeleton, um, and it's generally made of quite a um, a susceptible form of calcium carbonate, and so that can make it really difficult for them to make a good shell, and if they don't make a good shell, then that has flow-on effects as they grow. So it may make the larva not... Um, not able to swim as well as what it would if it was perfectly formed, that kind of thing. So with ocean acidification, it is the early life stages that are much more susceptible. When we talk about uh, ocean acidification, the, the typical picture that comes to mind are coral reefs, right? And so what's happening in coral reefs and, and, and ocean acidification in those environments? You know, they're having to deal, like we're not talking about Antarctica now, but, but um, they're also having to deal with warming and the issues that come with that, so, so it's kind of like a, a double whammy, and you end up with you know things like coral bleaching. Some of these organisms that use calcium carbonate, they are like habitat formers, like corals, coral reefs are. So they're they're important because they have a a major role in the ecosystem. They might um, like for a shellfish, for example, is important as a sometimes as a substrate for other things to settle on and grow. Um, they might live in the sediment, and um, they're important in exchanging nutrients between the sediment that they live in and the overlying water column and all that kind of thing. So, a lot of these animals have an integral role to play in their ecosystem. The acidification process and the warming process. They're kind of happening at the same time and in parallel, yeah? Yeah, yeah, they are. And so that's, I mean, that is a concern, yep. Right, and so, I mean, does that, uh, does that, that sounds quite like it could be uh, an accelerating process in that respect. Yeah, I mean, a lot of studies that have been done have shown that there are more negative effects of warming than there are of acidification. So when you put them together, um, you, yeah, it can 
just be even harder. How do we reduce uh, ocean acidification occurring on this on this mass scale around the world of of the oceans? Well, I guess it's the same the same solution to uh, um, global warming. So we stop emitting greenhouse gases. Right. We try and reduce that. It's it's amazing, hey, and it's a real. Um, it's a real symbol again in terms of just how connected our whole planet is. It's a scary time. What what keeps you motivated as a scientist um, at the moment? Oh, just um, I guess just trying to give more useful information about what you know. There are all sorts of projections coming out of the IPCC about what the world's going to look like in the future. Okay, so it's trying to translate that into information that might help people understand what it what it means. So. You know, if, if the world warms or if the seawater becomes more acidic, then how does that affect the ecosystems that we care about and the things that we like to do? Um, yeah, so we do, we do a lot of field studies and we do a lot of experimental work trying to ask those questions, particularly about species that are important for, you know, for reasons that I was talking about before or, or that people like to collect or that kind of thing. So, and Antarctica is... Um, you know, it's an amazing, um, unique place with incredible seafloor communities, and um, and we just want to, we're trying to figure out how that might look in fifty or hundred years time. And how's that going? How's that kind of? Oh, how's it's that good. research going? Yeah, yeah, it's good. We, I mean, we're making progress, but as you can imagine, it's it's a very complex ecosystem. If you think about the the coast um, outside the window here then it's not just the temperature, it's not just the, um, the acidity of the seawater, it's a whole lot of other things that go on in that environment that might affect the animals that live there. So, right. you know, like sedimentation, um, I don't know, some mm. other kinds of inputs into the ocean. Right, right, right. Yeah. So okay. it's trying to figure out how that all works and how those things might change also. Right. What's um, what is your study involved in Antarctica? Tell me a bit about what what you've done down there yourself, or or, or that research. Also, we've done a lot of work where we've looked at the different types of seafloor communities that you find in the, in coastal Ross Sea and right. the Ross and around Ross Island, um, and how the differences that you see in those communities are influenced by sea ice conditions. Um, so how long the sea ice is there for, how much, how long um, there is open water, and because all of that affects the amount of food that's around for those animals that live there right. to, to feed on and grow and yeah. affects food webs and stuff. So we've done a lot of work like that. Um, and we've also done uh, really cool work where we've brought animals back from Antarctica, shellfish back from Antarctica, and held them in the lab here for several months and done experiments to see how they if they will fare under low pH conditions um, or warmer temperatures. Right. And a really awesome thing that we did a few years ago was we actually looked at, we installed chambers underneath the ice to have a look and see how if we manipulated the pH of that seawater, um, how the, the ice the algae, yeah, yeah, how yeah. the ice algae would, um, would cope right so that was pretty cool what's yeah, so uh, all the, all ice algae can we talk about that a bit what's, what's yeah that so all you so you know how you get algae or phytoplankton floating around in the sea you know and everywhere the sea. Yeah, yeah everywhere yeah. Okay. totally the, the 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 canopy of the ocean if you like yeah yeah so um when you get a sea ice cover so 
there is there is in for a lot of the year there is ice which is like anywhere between one or three meters thick depending on where you might be um, and enough light actually makes it through that thick layer of sea ice so that algae can grow on its under surface right so if you sit on the bottom of the sea and you look up the undersurface of that ice often looks green right. and it's like you know like grass growing underneath yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. sea ice wow yeah. And yeah. so what kind of impacts does the algae have? Obviously, it's a, a huge source of food for, for lots of organisms That's down there. That's right, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of um, organisms actually live in that kind of matrix of algae um, and in the sea ice itself. But then that algae is a, an important food source for the animals that are living underneath it as well. So the algae kind of falls out, like, you know, it's like Drops snows, away, basically, like. yep. yeah, and ends up on the seafloor okay. um, for the animals that are sitting underneath that to feed on. So it's it's a pretty important food source. It's like the phytoplankton. Um, it's just as important as that in some areas. Wow. And so it's funny, uh, these communities under the ice in Antarctica, I mean, a lot of us uh, would probably think that because it's such a hostile place, et cetera, et cetera, just the, the sheer perceived unfriendliness to life that is down there. Uh, what are these communities like under the ice? Oh, in some cases, they're incredible, like the very dense, incredibly diverse types of organisms, um, heaps of them, uh, really colourful. Um, yeah, really amazing. Like, you know, it's, it is really surprising to kind of look, you know, on the surface there's not a lot of colour, as you know, it's just white it's and just brown white. and rock or whatever. Yeah, but underneath... Um, the ocean is actually where, where the life is in yeah, Antarctica, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so as well as the, you know, I mentioned before that, um, that particular types of carbonate are more susceptible to ocean acidification than others. So in the deep ocean, there is a, a depth below which um, aragonite, which is one of those types of calcium carbonate. Of, right, yep, of yeah, of shell, if you like. Yeah, so there's a depth below which that um, actually dissolves. So, And there's another form, which is called calcite, and there's a depth below which that also dissolves. So, so aragonite is way more... Um, susceptible to ocean acidification than calcite is. So what's happening with ocean acidification is that those, the depths at which those saturation horizons occur is shallowing. Right. So it's coming, it's coming up. closer to the surface, right? right? So as that happens, you can imagine that the theory is that the, um, the area which those organisms are living in is also shrinking. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're being forced to, if yeah. you like. Yep, so if they can't cope... Um, kind of like the underwater organism version of climate refugees. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so then they have the the um, the warming issue uh, from the ocean also. So that you can just kind of imagine that from different angles, things are, sh things are potentially shrinking. Right, like the best kind of areas of, of life are shrinking. What are we going to lose out on if that horizon continues to rise? Well, they're, they're very deep, these horizons at present. Um but I guess the I guess you can just say that it's likely that there'll be a change in the types of communities that you see there. So what we're involved in at the moment is trying to understand more about what kinds of communities, seafloor communities that we see along the coast in in the Ross Sea region, 
So this is part of the Antarctic science platform work that's going on and part of an ecosystem project. So as part of that, we're trying to expand the knowledge that we have of those areas by going and sampling a whole lot of them using ROV-type technologies. Yeah, so doing that and then trying to map what animals are where and how that relates to what the seafloor um, substrates are like. So, you know, is it rocky or sandy or whatever? And, and link that to sea ice conditions, which, as I'm sure you know, are expected to change in the future with warming. So we're trying to get a really good handle on um, what kinds of conditions those animals experience now where the vulnerable communities might be and then make predictions about what kinds of changes we might see in the future and um, you know what areas might be more vulnerable than others. I first went to Antarctica a really long time ago as a actually as a technician to help out to do some work on on the land and even though I've always been a marine ecologist I got the chance to go and I've you know for some reason as with a lot of people it's a place that you you kind of would love to go to. Absolutely. So I went there and then it took me about 10 years to get back again. Um, and luckily I've I've managed to go back again and again and again. And it's just, so I was lucky to go the first time. This, ever since that time I've been doing going and doing marine research, which is what I do. Where does your curiosity for the ocean come from? Could you boil that down to anything? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was when I was a kid spending time at the, at the beach. Yeah. We used to go to the beach for our holidays. So it was, and I didn't live anywhere near the beach. So it was always a real, a real treat to spend the holidays at the beach. And that was when you first sort of established your, that connection, yes. right? So that's it. I was going to be a marine biologist. Hmm. You said that to yourself? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. That's super cool. Yeah. And here you are now. And here I am, luckily enough. Having been to Antarctica how many times? Um, uh, th- 13, I think, so far. Wow. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Vonda, for your time and um, and sharing just a bit of that knowledge with us and all the best with the, with the rest of your work and research and, and thanks for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. No problem. It's been a pleasure and good luck. <laughs> Oh, yes. Good Always luck good with luck. Getting, getting this into something <laughs> exactly <that> useful. <laughs> Thank you, Vonda. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And And until until next time, time, stay cool. Stay cool.